Now, as I said, we are in Matthew 18, and this is the fourth discourse of Matthew's gospel. If you don't know what a discourse is, a discourse is simply a focused discussion on a particular subject. The five discourses in Matthew are not just mere sidetracks. They're not just rabbit trails that Jesus goes off on uh, to teach some other other things to, to distract from the narrative of the text. Now, these are important conversations that Jesus has. And in each one of them, Jesus teaches us as his disciples, something about the kingdom of heaven. So for example, in the discourse on the sermon on the Mount, that's Matthew chapter five to chapter seven, Jesus teaches his disciples what a kingdom life really looks like. Kingdom life looks like meekness hungering for righteousness, avoiding adultery of all forms, laying up treasures in heaven and other Christ-centered actions. We come later in Matthew 10 to the missional discourse where Jesus teaches his disciples how they're to go about the kingdom's mission by preaching the good news. And then still later we get to Matthew 13, which is the parabolic discourse, which is given to describe what the kingdom of heaven is like. We think of the parable, the mustard seed and the leaven, which teaches us how the kingdom grows in the world. Well, now we come to the fourth discourse, Matthew 18. And the sole purpose of this discourse is to teach us what it means to be great in the kingdom of heaven. Do you want to know how to be truly great in the eyes of heaven? As we will see in the next two weeks, greatness in the kingdom of heaven is being humble like a child, unconcerned about our status, serious about sin and gracious towards sinners. In other words, truly great kingdom citizens humble themselves and have the right view of sin on the one hand. And on the other hand, have the right attitude towards sinners. Now to review where we've been, Jesus has just told his disciples that he must die. He must suffer, die, and then he'll rise again. And in the last section, he illustrated what would come of that, what that would be like by paying for a temple tax for which he was exempt as his identity as the son of God He needed not pay the temple tax. And yet he humbly submitted himself to that tax anyway, to show that he, though he had no reason for redemption would pay for redemption for us so that we could enter into the presence of God. Now, having seen such humility in Matthew's gospel from Jesus, it seems rather odd that the disciples would think it appropriate to ask the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? After all that they've seen, this humble Messiah who is sleeping on the ground, who is walking, who is mistreated, who says that his main mission is to suffer, die, and rise again for his people. It seems odd that the question on their minds would be, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Matthew does not tell us what led to this question. Though Mark and Luke tell us that it stemmed from an argument that the disciples were having on the road. Thinking in human terms and thinking of human kingdoms, who would a king want as his number two? Well, surely he wants the strongest. After all, he needs a good captain to wage his conquest. That would probably mean Peter in this instance. After all, we all know how he can whip out a sword and flick off an ear in an instant. No, he probably wants the wisest. 
He'll need a good advisor to help him think through all the policies, through all the, the cultural dilemmas of his day. That would mean Thomas. Thomas, with his rational mind, can sift through any bit of nonsense to find the truth. Maybe he would want the most industrious. And industrious, number two, can make the kingdom's economy grow. Certainly that can mean Judas. After all, he is the keeper of the money bag. Later in Matthew 20, James and John's mother will step in to make a case for why her sons should have a seat next to Jesus' throne. I can't think of anything more humiliating than to have my mom come to the king and tell him why I deserve to be his number two. But that's exactly what we have happening in Matthew 20. Ever since Babel, fallen people have had an insatiable desire for greatness. We are obsessed with the idea of making a great name for ourselves. We are people who are natural Babel builders. We, we, we make our towers up to the sky. We long for a great and immortal name. We crave it just like we crave water in the desert or food in a famine. We have this inherent desire to feel important, influential, successful, and powerful. We don't want anyone else to get ahead of us. We want to be seen as the best. We want to be the movers and shakers. We want to be in the room where decisions are made instead of just being where we are at the moment. I think all of us, if we're honest, can admit that we do long for that kind of greatness, that we do long to be those who are seen as the best, the most powerful, the most deserving of adoration. And not only that, but we're raised to think this way. Just Google greatness and you'll find a number of cheesy impassioned quotes that present the pursuit of greatness as the crown jewel of humanity. That our sole existence is to be great. We are raised to fight mediocrity. Don't just be mediocre. Climb, strive, outrun, and stroke the fires of your ambition. And if you're not willing to do that, something's wrong with you. Now, the problem with that is that we do not always know what we mean by greatness. What does it mean when we say that we should strive for greatness? What does it mean to be great? Now, the danger in not knowing exactly what we mean by greatness is that our definition of greatness might not align with God's definition. And when our definition of greatness does not align with God's, then we end up pursuing things God never intended us to pursue in ways that God never intended us to do. It is ironic that the disciples come to the one who is literally the greatest in the kingdom. Who could be greater than the king? Their question seems somewhat ironic, doesn't it? They come to the king himself asking the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom? The obvious answer should be Jesus. They should already know that as the king, he and anyone who resembles him is great in the kingdom. That is the definition of what it means to be great. He's the king. And yet they're somehow looking for something different. They seem to be looking for some other attribute that is antithetical to Jesus, antithetical to Jesus, something other than Jesus. Jesus is great and all. Yes, he's the king, but Surely the greatest in the kingdom would be the strongest, the most uh, intelligent, the most influential, the most productive, the most wealthy, the most religious, the most uh, superficially devoted. 
Surely it's something else, something that we tend to take pride in. So as we come to this text in Matthew 18, we were left asking several questions. Number one, who is great in the kingdom of heaven? While their question is inappropriate, I still think it's worth asking who is great in the kingdom of heaven. Number two, what do we mean by great? Number three, and this is extremely important. How would Jesus answer the question of what greatness means? And then finally, I think there's a subtle implicit question in all of this. Are we willing to turn from our definition of greatness? If it doesn't align with Christ. Now, yes, intellectually, we're not going to disagree with anything that Jesus says. Intellectually, we're going to be thumbs up to whatever he says next. We tend to have this attitude about us that this has something else to do other than our daily interaction in life. And yet all through life, we tend to be living for this other greatness without ever really changing our lives. The problem with that is, is Jesus wants you to live in the day-to-day greatness that he has for you. He wants you to understand that greatness is not what you initially may think it is. That the pursuit of greatness is not in the same direction that everybody tells you to go after it. Greatness is something else. And unless we're willing to pursue that greatness, we'll never be great. Now, before Jesus answers the question, he calls to himself a child. It doesn't even say anything yet. And he goes and calls to himself a child and has the child stand in the midst of his disciples. He says to his disciples, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus attributing greatness to a child could not be more surprising. In the ancient world, children were seen as vulnerable, helpless, dependent, needy. They had nothing to do with the day-to-day decisions of life. They had no status among men of the adult world. In fact, the word translated as child, paideon in Greek, is the same, or it comes from the same root word as the word for slave, pious. And so they're seen as on the same level. They need to be provided for. They have no decision-making power, no influence. All in all, they're very low in status in society. And they simply don't match up to other people like warriors, philosophers, poets, or kings. Now, let me just ask you, if someone were to walk up to you for the first time ever, let's pretend this question never was asked. And someone asked you, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Who would we tend to go get? Well, maybe we'd go get the president. Maybe we'd go get a doctor. I mean, after all, who's smarter than a doctor? Maybe we'd go get some professor at some big name university like Yale or Princeton. Maybe we would get a Nobel prize winner. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus goes and gets a child. Just let that settle in. This is another example of the great reversal at work. The humble are exalted. The little children are lifted up and the self-exalting are pushed away. The humble are exalted. The self-exalting are humbled. 
is not the strong and the powerful who are great in the kingdom, but humble little children. It's the Tituses, my, my youngest son, who are great in the kingdom. The little ones. It's the Santiago's. It's the children in the nursery. It's the children who are weak and dependent and unassuming, unconcerned about status that are great. And Jesus says to be great, we must become like them. Now in this, Jesus is not saying that people should become immature like a child, but rather they should desire and pursue humility to become weak, to know themselves as weak and stop pretending that they're strong, to be unassuming, to be uh, people who are not presumptuous, to not think that we deserve anything, to truly be small in life. Children know they need to be fed. In my house, especially on snow days, children are constantly coming to ask for food. They know they need to be fed and they know that they have to come to dad or mom to get fed. They are dependent. They need to be clothed. They need to be given a home. Now, at some point, adults grow foolish enough to think that we do all these things for ourselves. We win the bread. We buy the clothes. We pay for the house. And we do it all in our own power and strength. Jesus says that his disciples must turn, meaning that they must change the way they view life. They must change the way they view greatness. In short, they must do nothing less than repent. The way Jesus speaks of turning suggests that if you have the wrong view of greatness, if you have the wrong idea of what it means to be great, you are in sin. It's nothing short of idolatry to have this, this goal in mind that something less than Jesus, something less than humility in following Jesus. It is nothing less than idolatry. It is sin to follow him. Jesus makes us lie down our credentials, our vanity, and our independent pursuits. He makes us lie down our great name, our power that we cling to. And when we come to him, we must come ready to turn from whatever it is that we're chasing after, whatever it is that we're clinging to, whatever it is that we're fearful of losing, we must turn from it all and come to him. So, Disciples then must turn from this idea that the kingdoms for the powerful, that greatness in the kingdom is influence and power and strength and might and all these things that they might think it is that they must repent and counter to their expectations. They must humble themselves like a child. My friends, I just want to tell you right now that Christian maturity is not necessarily growing up. Christian maturity is growing low. Christian maturity is growing less. The kingdom of heaven is inverted. What looks like to be a small mustard seed is going to grow. and It's going to pervade all the earth. It's going to conquer it all. It's going to be the only kingdom left when all other kingdoms are forgotten. It's inverted. It doesn't start big with this massive conquest. It starts small in the same way. Jesus' disciples are not big manly warriors that have muscles to show. They're small, weak, frail, dependent children. The kingdom of heaven is happily founded on the weak and foolish things of the world. 
God has told us that over and over and over again. And my friends, if we are to become mature disciples of Christ, we must stop fearing being treated like children. If we are to be in, if we are to be grown, mature followers of Jesus, we must value childlike attributes. C.S. Lewis once wrote, when I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childishness and the desire to be very grown up. It's the same for us as disciples. Our whole lives, we are taught to be independent grown-ups. We spend the rest of our days, though, as we follow Jesus, learning what it means to be dependent. It is incredibly hard for us as, as adults to know what it means to be dependent because we have fought so long and so hard to be independent and to establish ourselves. We got the first job. We got the first raise. We went and got the, the uh, diploma. We're the ones that have the degrees. We're, we're the ones that stayed up late at night and earned the A's to get the job. We bought the house. And as we grow up in life, we tend to forget just how dependent we are in Jesus. We grow bigger and bigger in our mind's eye. But as mature disciples, we grow smaller and smaller. We grow less and less. The gospel teaches us that far from being self, uh, self-sustaining, far from being independent, that we are dependent, that we are needy, that we are helpless, that we must look to Jesus for satisfaction. The gospel teaches us how to have happy hearts like children again. My friends, there's so many of us thinking like grownups, thinking we can make predictions of where the world is going, thinking that we know the reality of what's happening. And, and in reality, we are called to be children and to have joy, even in the midst of winter snowstorms. Some of us look out and we see ice. Others of us look out and see a second Christmas because our father has sent the snow it is that kind of mindset that we must have to be children, to have strength, to trust in the strength of the father, not strength to trust in our own strength, but to be strong enough to trust in the strength of the father and to love innocence, not to come with all of our complex thinking, thinking that that is the way that God wants us to live life. No, we come to it with a complex trust for the Lord and simple loving hearts that want to see our father's strength as he protects and preserves us. The greatest people in the kingdom of God are those who are learning not how to grow up, but those who are learning how to grow downward in humility. We know we are doing this when our adoration of Jesus increases and the adoration of self diminishes. When we stop asking, how do I become great? Then we know we're on the road to greatness. When we stop asking, how do I become independent? How do I become an adult? Do we truly find the way to become a child and only children enter into the kingdom of heaven? Now to be great in the kingdom of heaven, according to Jesus is to be humble like a child carrying nothing for our name or or status. But what does that humility look like in everyday life? The rest of this discourse expounds upon what it means to be humbly great or greatly humble as a child. Looking carefully at Jesus following statements for the rest of the chapter of Matthew 18, 
We can define humble greatness in the kingdom as number one, having the right view of sin. And number two, having the right love for sinners. Humble greatness, just to say it again, in the kingdom is having the right view of sin and having the right love for sinful people. Now, what do these things have to do with humility? What is knowing God's perspective of sin and having God's kind of love for sinners have anything to do with humility? Very simple. When we are humble children, we trust our father's word about sin. And we learn to love other people as the father has loved us. We seek to conform to his view instead of retaining our own humility, which is a disposition to lay aside our own will, what we want to be true, what we want to happen, the way we think we should live in order to live according to the will of God, which is founded on mercy, love, and faith. So humility is the foundation of our discipleship. And our perspective of sin and our love for sinners is the application of that humility. We can summarize Jesus' discourse about humble greatness with five statements. And if you have your notes that we sent you this morning through email, then you'll be able to follow along just great with these. But first we have the right perspective of sin. And that's seen in verses five through nine. Humbly great children of the kingdom do not lead others into sin. That's verses five five through seven. And then the second statement, humbly great children avoid sin at all cost verses eight through nine. And then we get to the second half of what it means to be humbly great. Not only do we have the right perspective of sin, we have the right love for sinners. And so you get the next three statements, humbly great children rejoice that God saves sinners. Humbly great children handle sin in the right way. They don't do it in all these sideways and back roads. They do it in the way that God has commanded them to. And humbly great children forgive much because they have been forgiven much. That's verses 21 through 35. Now in this sermon, we're going to consider just the first half of what it means to be humbly great, to, to have the right perspective of sin. What does it mean to have the right perspective of sin? As is demonstrated in verses five through nine, if you are a humbly great disciple, you will inevitably see sin the way Christ sees it. You won't just see sin and won't diminish it as a mere minor character defect or some unfortunate fall. It's not just going to be something that's, ah, this is an unfair, unfair or unfortunate defect in life. Just a minor mistake. Sin, according to the Bible is the source of all of mankind's unhappiness. In particular, it's the source of separation from God. It's the leading cause of death. It's the reason mankind doesn't enjoy and experience joy in the presence of God as it was made to. The old Puritans used to describe sin as a hidden snake that just waits in your life, ready to make you its prey. And in that description, there's no small view of sin. It is deadly. It is dangerous. It's ready to sink its fangs into your flesh. And so if you have the right perspective of sin, you'll see it's not just an unfortunate flaw. It's a fatal flaw. It's a fatal thing. It is something that is out to kill you. And that is why it's described as being so destructive. The wages of sin is death is what the Bible says. It talks about it leading us to a pit of skeletons and Proverbs. Now, 
for us as Christians, we know we still have sin. What do we do about that when we as believers have sin? What does that mean? Well, for us as believers, sin is still just as dangerous. It's, it is absolutely contradictory to life. Just because Jesus forgave your sin and just because that there is now no condemnation doesn't make it any less dangerous for you. It can still zap joy from you. It is still contradictory to the life that God has called you to live. First John, for example, says that Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil, which is sin. How bizarre is it then for us as Christians to build up what Christ destroyed? Christ came to destroy addictions. How weird and contradictory is it for us as believers to then willingly build up those addictions in our own lives? It's, it's like saying that we love the light while keeping the lights off. To say that we love the sunshine while we keep the curtains closed. To say that we love the snow, but never going out and playing in it. It's contradictory. Putting it all together, a Christian who sins, which 1 John says is is not possible for someone born of God to make a practice of sin. That is so contradictory in John's mind that he doesn't understand how Christians can willingly give themselves to sin and sin and sin and sin and to love sin. Because in his mind, people who sin are similar to people who verbally claim to have Jesus as their king while living in willing insurrection against him. That's bizarre to love, to say that you love a king and yet to do things that are not loving toward him, to do things that are showing that you actually love other things. It's like a man having an affair on his wife all the while telling her that he loves her. It's inconsistent. It's contradictory and it's dangerous. And so how does Jesus envision humbly great children of the kingdom dealing with sin? First, Jesus depicts his disciples, expects his disciples to not lead others into sin. Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, little ones here uh, refers to other believers. It's not just actual children. It is a terrible thing to lead children into sin. But Jesus is implying that's a terrible thing to lead any of his disciples, any of the children in his kingdom to sin. All believers are to become like this child. And so whoever receives such little ones, such disciples receives Jesus. That said, Jesus says that humbly great disciples treat other disciples, other children in the way that they would treat Jesus. They are to receive and welcome the children in the kingdom in Jesus's name, knowing that when they welcome Jesus' disciples, they welcome Jesus himself. They are to show loving hospitality versus showing giving them a stumbling block. You see the difference here. One is receiving and the other is casting out a stumbling stone, something to trip them up. You can either welcome the little ones of the kingdom or you can trip them. Those are the two choices Jesus gives. Now the word for sin is scandalon. Okay. Which 
in, in all its simplicity, just simply means to cause someone to stumble or to fall, to lead someone into sin. And so we think of the way uh, that, that Satan tempted Adam and Eve into sin. And here Jesus gives the same inclination. If you become a tempter, you are setting yourself up like the serpent trying to deceive the children of God. Jesus commends loving his disciples, but he gives the strongest warning against leading disciples into sin. Think of the terrifying way that he describes the consequences of doing this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck. I don't know if you've seen a millstone, but in Israel, they have some old ancient millstones on display. It is massive. These things can weigh several hundreds of pounds. There's no way that you can carry one of these things around your neck and walk. So imagine this massive rock that weighs hundreds and hundreds of pounds being fastened around your neck. And then what? To be dropped out in the open ocean. I can't think of anything more terrible than that. That, that, that is terrible death. And yet Jesus says it would be better for that to happen. It's actually more preferable for that to happen than for you to lead one of his little ones into sin. That seems bizarre unless sin is more dangerous than you dying. You leading others into sin is more dangerous and deadly than for you yourself to be killed. Jesus says, woe to the world for temptations for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Woe expresses an indescribably deep lament. It's this deep heartfelt pity for someone. It saddens Jesus' heart to think about the temptations of the world, the causes of sin. He knows that the fallen world is filled with temptation. He knows that it is natural for the world to have temptations. This is what he means by necessary. The world's fallen and therefore there are temptations. That's a given fact. But woe to the one by whom temptation comes. It's terribly unfortunate to be one who tempts others. In our modern day, I don't think we fully appreciate how much our lives, our attitudes, or our words impact other people. We don't live in a bubble. The things we say, the things we do, our actions have drastic impact on others. The life-changing impact. We tend to have this live-free mindset that I can say whatever I want to say. I can do whatever I want, and it will not impact those around me. The Bible could not have a more drastically different view than this. We fail to see just how dangerous our sin is. When we get unjustly angry, when we say things we shouldn't, when we do things we shouldn't. My friends, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. If that's true, if the wages of sin is death and a spiritual death at that, then leading someone into sin is like leading them to death. That's just the logic in the mind here. Think of the way we so openly complain and we invite others to grumble with us. Do we, do we, Think that inviting others to grumble with us, to become discontent with us, that we are not leading them to death, that we're not sowing discontentment with God. 
Even then our complaining doesn't just impact us and our unhappiness. We invite little ones to follow us into discontent in our gossip session. We invite others to reject God's command to love others and to deal with conflict in the way that he has commanded them to seek peace. We invite them into insurrection. We invite them into rebellion in our angry rants. We teach less mature believers to be angry like we are in our harmless flirtations with the opposite sex. We invite people who should be treated like brothers and sisters to commit mental adultery, which Jesus says in the sermon on the Mount is just as bad as actual adultery. Many a marriage sadly has been ruined in churches. Many affairs have happened in church offices between church members. Many a secret sexual sins happen in this place because Christians or people who call themselves Christians are unconcerned with how their actions might lead someone else away from Christ. Our prideful comparisons can do the same as we lead people into envy. My friends, the point is simple. Your sin does not just impact you. Why do we tell people not to text and drive? Why do we tell people not to drink and drive? Well, it's not just because that the, the drunk driver might kill himself. It's because the drunk driver might kill an entire van load of a family. We've seen it thousands of times over his tipsy state doesn't just impact him. Someone texting and driving might not even impact the texter, but it might kill a pedestrian. Friends, our sins are worse than that because it has a spiritual impact, not just a physical impact. If you text and drive and hit somebody else and kill them, you have physically killed them. When you sin and lead somebody else into sin, you lead them on the path toward spiritual death. So my friends, by leading other people into sin, by inviting them to gossip sessions, inviting them into prideful comparisons, inviting them into this flirtatious relationship, inviting them into whatever sin that you might have, whatever other sin you might be modeling for them. At best, you're being spiritually negligent. And at worst, you're committing spiritual manslaughter. Do you have that kind of perspective of your sin? Modern people, we tend to lighten it up. Well, now I don't ask other people to do what I do or to say what I say, but no, but by saying it and doing it in the way that you want in a sinful way, you are still inviting others to follow suit. You're leading them into the same unhappiness, the same discontentment, the same broken life, the same isolation that you are in or that you're heading to. To lead others into sin is like being spiritually negligent with the children in the car. It's like giving children poison, being spiritually uh, a spiritual manslaughter. It is, is absolutely harmful to those who are less mature than you and who follow you into your sin. Woe to the one by whom temptation comes. So to be humbly great, to be a humbly great child of the kingdom, don't lead others to sin. Second, 
Jesus expects his disciples to avoid sin at all cost. Not only should we avoid leading others into sin, but we should run from sin ourselves. In verses eight and nine, Jesus turns to us as individuals who struggle with sin. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. That is striking. That is radical to say that. Cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands and two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into the fire of hell. Now put down the knife, put down the eye plucker, whatever you've got in your hand. We know Jesus isn't saying this literally. He's not expecting you now to take a meat cleaver and cut off your hand because if you cut off your hand physically, it's not going to do anything to keep you from sin. What he's simply saying here is that he's giving us a metaphor for how we're to avoid sin. Now, I don't want to soften it too much. Jesus is giving a metaphor. None of Jesus' disciples are seen cutting off their hands or plucking out their eyes. It is a metaphor. However, I think we too, we too quickly jump to, oh, it's just a metaphor. And then we never apply it. The simple application of what Jesus is saying here, do whatever it takes to rid yourself of the sin. Do whatever it takes. My friends, this is not as impractical as we think it is. Does your phone tempt you to sin? Do you find it nearly impossible to honor God when you are on it? Are you willing to get rid of it? I mean, phone's not a necessity, is it? Flip phones are making a comeback, I hear. Are you willing to live without your phone? Are you, are you struggling with the secretary at your job? Are you willing to take a demotion and get a new job? Because it would be better for you to get paid less than for you to commit adultery with your secretary. Are you finding it hard to be around finances without, without stealing money? Well, stay away from the money. It is better for you to be poor than for you to have all the money in the world and to never enjoy a relationship with God. Sin is dangerous for you. And it brings only a slow and painful death. It is better for you to live like a stone age Christian than for you to be a modern slave doomed to die. My friends, your sin, your bitterness, your envy, your anger, your pride, your gossip, your lust, all these things want to kill you. You don't hear that a lot in our modern day, but that's the reality of what sin is. First, it will destroy your closest relationships. Then it will drive you to isolation. After your relationships are gone, you'll be alone. And then you'll start to feel all this joy that you once had in life. steadily being zapped. Even the natural goodness of God will no longer seem good. This God who has been sweet to us, who has loved us with unmeasurable love, who has, who has loved us even while we were still enemies. He will seem like our enemy. Your sin having robbed everything you hold dear 
will leave you brokenhearted. It'll leave you shattered. And in many, many, many ways, it'll leave you in a state worse than death. Now, seeing how sin can endanger our joy with God, humbly great children do everything possible to flee from sin. Now, who's sufficient for this kind of fight? Now, we, we, we know we're, we're weak people, right? We, we just, we bite the lure over and over again. We, we placate to the temptation. We do what, whatever we want most of the time. And it's so hard. We, we know we shouldn't have looked at, at that on the phone. And, and yet there's just something inside of us that one more look is okay. We know we shouldn't have that addiction or that habit. We know we should keep our mouth shut. We know that we should uh, uh, do certain things in a different way. And yet we just, it doesn't seem like we can help it. What do we do then when you find that your temptation is stronger than you? Well, to that end, scripture gives us hope. Sin is stronger than you. And if you try on your own to avoid sin at whatever cost, you will fail. And it will catch up with you anyway. Instead, we must look to one who is stronger than us. And this is where becoming like children is, is applicable in us. We must realize that we are not strong enough to cut off the hand, to pluck out the eye. We're not strong enough to defeat sin. Here's what Hebrews 4.15 says. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. Now that word sympathize, sympathize means to suffer with. We do not have a high priest who is unable to suffer with our weaknesses. He has endured it all but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He suffered. He knows the weight of sin. He knows the weight of temptation even better than you do. He was the son of God who did not deserve to suffer. He faced Satan himself. You might be facing some little minion of the kingdom of hell, tempting you with some little temptation. Jesus faced the king dragon himself. And the king dragon tempted him. You can get out of it all. Just bow the knee. You don't have to suffer. Jesus knows how hard temptation is better than you do. And his heart hurts for you. He groans at the thought that his people are suffering under it. He sympathizes. Having never endured sin himself, but having endured temptation, his heart goes out to you. So what do we do then? Knowing that we have a savior whose heart is burdened for us. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16. My friends, if you find that grace, that you find that sin is deadlier and stronger than you can bear. You have one who is even stronger than your sin. You have one who has defeated sin. There's one strong enough to face the temptation, to carry it. And he died for it. He took your cross. He took your shame. He took your sin so that you could be Free. He substituted himself and died on Golgotha so that you could live. And then he rose again so that you can enjoy all the benefits of his kingdom, all the benefits of coming to his throne. My friends, if you find it so hard, so difficult to flee from sin, run to the king. 
run to the one who's stronger than your sin. And you will find help in time of need. Sometimes we just have to humble ourselves and become like a child that who knows they need help. My friends, when the bully of temptation is too big for you, run to your big brother. He can beat up the bully when you can't. So there we have it. The first half of this discourse, humbly great children of the kingdom do everything possible to run from sin, do everything possible to keep themselves from leading others into temptation and sin. My friends, do you have that kind of mindset of greatness? Are you still pursuing some other form of greatness? My prayer for you is that you will turn from that old pursuit and that you will turn to the true greatness that is in Christ, which is to be a humble child who hates sin. Join us next week. We'll be in the rest of Matthew 18 and we'll see how humbly great children do everything possible to love the sinner. Just as humbly great children have the right perspective of sin. So also humbly great children have the right perspective of the sinner. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you for your word. God, we ask that you will help us to be humbly great. God, help us to draw near to the throne of grace and receive mercy in time of need. We love you. We ask that you will teach us more of what it means to be in your kingdom. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. My friends, if you have any questions, please feel free to call us. Uh, You can reach us at office at gracechurchovilla.com, or you can find our website, gracechurchovilla.com, or just simply Google Grace Church and you'll find us. We want to hear from you. If you want to know more about Jesus, we would love to share with you how you can come to know him as your king. God bless.